Glad to see you. Glad uh, if you're watching us in any means online, uh, you may be watching a rerun later on or watching live right now. If, if you're on one of those sites where you can like us, give us the thumbs up, whatever, if you do that, that would be helpful to us. Uh, we guess at who you are a lot. If you want to send us a message, that'd be great uh, because we're, we only can guess at who's watching and, and uh, to know a little bit more about uh, who you are, it would be a, a benefit to us. So, just appreciate if you do that. We're in Genesis 11 today, and I'm calling this sermon today, Stairway to Heaven, okay? Uh, I, I recognize you got to be at least as old as me to maybe fully appreciate that title. You can leave that up, that's fine. Um, or mine back there disappeared. Okay, there it is. Uh, and, and this is about the Tower of Babel. So uh, th- this does relate, actually, in a much deeper way than, than you might think. Before we get too far away from the first 11 chapters of Genesis, I, I want to tell you something. I want to tell you why I want to tell you. I want to tell you because I just read it this week. And what I'm going to tell you has to do with evolution and fossils and all of that because I read it this week. And what I'm telling you is you can read stuff every week because it was, I don't watch the news. Uh, I guess they still have it very much, I guess occasionally. So I I just kind of checked a news site and I saw this title, which got my attention and I read it. And here's the story. There's a, there was a diver, a couple of divers actually, in Florida, diving in a river in Florida and pulled up a woolly mammoth bone, a mastodon bone, 50 pound, 60 pound bone. Uh, his friend was a guy that knows about that stuff and called him and they're all excited. This was a, they called it a Colombian mastodon. It, it roamed this side of the world um, and they dated it and it was between 2.6 million and 10,000 years old. <laughs> so way to narrow it down. I uh, appreciate that. Um, that. That's a vast difference. And they said because it was in water, it was harder to date. But did you catch the one end of it was 10,000 years? Oh, and it probably got there during an ice age, <laughs> which of course happened right after the flood. And that was like 6,000, 7,000 years ago. So uh, somewhere in there. And so uh, it, it lines up with the Bible. It doesn't line up with anything else. Um, That was one story. Then, while I was there, I saw this other story, and the title was, Tyrannosaurus Rex May Have Hunted in Packs Like Wolves, is what it went on to say. So I read that one, and they found this Tyrannosaurus Rex dinosaur skeleton amidst a bunch of other Tyrannosaurus Rex skeletons in a skeleton graveyard on the plains in North America. Which, if you'll remember, I said, the faster... The bigger, the stronger, and the smarter you were, the more you could avoid the, the flood because you just kept moving to higher ground, as which a lot of these big animals did. And then they died there. And they said this was a new theory, but they thought of it first 20 years ago because they found them there and in a similar kind of area up in Canada. But they said, but, but don't jump to conclusions. There weren't, because in the area where... They, they had to say it, but they, they, it was almost like, don't pay attention to what we're going to say. But there were other dinosaur bones around too, but we, don't worry about that. It was just a pack of Tyrosaurus rex, and somehow this hunting pack of Tyrosaurus rex all died at the same time in the same place. And they said, we're not sure what happened, but it couldn't have had anything to do with water. I mean, that was almost the line in the story. So I'm just cracking up, because every week you can read these stories that point to the Bible and point you away from evolution, but 
There's none so blind as those who cannot see or will not see. So uh, today we're in chapter 11. And, because, and what I mean by saying up to these chapters, because this is the beginning of what we might would call modern man in one sense of the word. We had Adam to the flood. Now we're after the flood and we're starting to move towards us, which this story happens about 2200 B.C., so only about 2,200 years before Christ, we're at the Tower of Babel. And after this story, it runs straight to Abraham, straight to Moses, David, and Jesus in the Scriptures. And uh, there'll be a short genealogy after this story showing how from Noah we get to, uh, we get to Abraham. And also, I told you last week, and I want to remind you, chapter 11 should come before chapter 10, at least this part of it. But the reason it doesn't is because they wanted to show you the big picture of, okay, here's where they all went, but now they come down to the story of why they went. So these first nine verses or so of chapter 11 tell us why everybody went where they went or were dispersed. They don't tell us the reason for each individual, but why the dispersion happened. And I'm calling it stairway to heaven for, for a, a, a reason. It starts with a very obvious reason, but that's not quite true. Uh, because I don't know about you, but as a kid growing up in, in church, I learned about the Tower of Babel. And back then, uh, at least where I'm from, most everybody used uh, what we uh, referred to finally as the King James Bible, which is a wrong name for it. It's actually the authorized version. But the King James Bible said, says it in a way that makes it look like they were trying to build a tower to reach to God in heaven so uh, that they wouldn't be flooded and they could get to God. And really, this wasn't a tower as as much as a ziggurat, a a big structure, wide base, and you you kind of went up a spiral staircase or around the edge going up to get to the top. It's a tower to worship the stars. It's astrology. And I'll show you in Scripture the guy and tell you from Scripture and other places uh, who he actually was and what he uh, actually uh, did. And so this is happening not long after the flood. And so here's a phrase I want you to take home with you today. Humanism ain't new. All right? Humanism ain't new. Now, humanism, uh, my wife is out of town on her way back. She called and said... Uh, you know, don't use words, people, you're not explaining yourself well. So I'm going to try to explain it better than I did in the first earth. But humanism is a belief that man is the measure and end of all things. Humanism makes man God, okay? That's the simplest explanation I can give. Uh, back when I was a teenager, that was the catchword everybody was fussing about. Today we have other catchwords we're fighting about. But it all boils down to the same thing. We just keep changing the names of it. Because what we're going to see that I talked about when I was a kid and teenager, uh, what we call something else today and talk to our kids about, and what was happening here in Genesis 11 are all the exact same thing. It doesn't change. Just the names and places change. All right? So, so we're going to look at that. And, and, and here's, here's what I'm driving at. That man left to his own devices apart from God is a fallen man. Now, a fallen man... Without God, when they get together, what they come up with 
ain't good, okay? I'm going to keep using that word just to drive the point home. But it is not good. We will come up with stuff that will hurt other people. We'll come up with all kind of destructive uh, things. And we will forget God. We, we forget that God is the source of, of whatever intellect we have, whatever good things we have. And we forget that. And yet, if amongst lost men, it seems that they want to become, there's this drive for us to be together. Uh, but uh, I'm going to quote a lot of old uh, songs today from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and maybe even the 90s. And, and here's the problem. Everybody wants to rule the world. What are we doing today, brain? Same thing we do every day, pinky. Taking over the world, <laughs> right? Everybody wants to be that. And so that's what creates war. Because we want to rule you. Now, America is a grand exception in all of history. And today is Memorial Day. And I do pay great honor to those who fell uh, on battlefields to for the, give me the freedom to do what I'm doing today. I don't miss the connection whatsoever. I appreciate that. But we're, we're in a unique experiment uh, that, that began, you know, a couple hundred plus years ago now. About two, almost 250 now. Uh, years ago... Uh, where when we have conducted war in general, there was exceptions, we then turned around and helped that country. We didn't take it with, onto ourselves. We, we gave it back and tried to help them out. But in all of history, when men went to war, it was to conquer more land and build their own empires. And, and as I said, there are exceptions. I'm not here to, to argue that right now um, because I could name them along with you, some of the exceptions. But... But, but what I want you to understand and just give you a few hints that it is in our culture so strongly. Uh, I just mentioned that song. Uh, there was another song. I believe it was, uh, uh, boy, now their names aren't going to come to me. Um, Crosby, Stills, Nash. I don't know if Young was in on it or not. Um, we've got to get back to the garden uh, was, a, was a line in that song. Uh, we hear other songs that talk about, uh, uh, oh, I thought of... Uh, um, the Beatle, uh, John Lennon, um, imagine, everybody, oh, imagine so great. No, imagine is, is heathenistic. It is paganism. It is this. Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no hell. You can do it if you try. But there is a heaven. There is a hell. You've got to decide. You, today, our, our kids, uh, our youngest generation that are now adults, are going through something, and they call it deconstructing their faith. I'm talking about kids that grew up in church. I'm not talking about the world now. Kids that grew up in our church, they are questioning the faith of their fathers, and, and, and I think that they should. I think that everybody, God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. I think everybody should look carefully at the claims of Christ and, and decide, was Christ a Lord liar or a lunatic? What was he, and who was he, and then decide... And, and I believe, I trust that because he is God and what he said is true. And that's where you should come out. But they're, they're doing that and they're looking for something different than what they grew up with in church. Now, I want to tell you, that's a condemnation of us. That means that I didn't do my job right or, or the church didn't do its job right in, in helping them to, to understand and grow. And we've gotten so far away from biblical Christianity and so much of what we do in church. We, we still have echoes of stuff that we, is cultural from, from 60, 70, 80 years ago or 100 years ago. And we still cling to those cultural things that don't have anything to do with Scripture. 
And uh, I, I don't want to, I'm not downing the church because this is the bride of Christ. I believe we ought to love the church, but we ought not love our traditions. Traditions is peer pressure from dead people. Okay, just if once you get that concept, that'll help you quite a bit. In science, I read this article one day about we've discovered all this, but, it's not, but nobody will believe it. And someone asked that scientist, what will it take for, for that to be adapted or adopted as truth? And they said, a new generation of scientists. The old ones have to die. Our kids are now bringing that into the church where they are doubting everything that they've ever learned, not just stuff that didn't matter. And they call it deconstructing their faith. They're, they're, if, listen, if you're a parent of a teenager or, or a millennial, if you don't like to listen to podcasts, there are some good ones out there about this very subject. But my daughter uh, referred me to a book, and I want to read something this guy said. The name of the book uh, is called Before You Lose Your Faith, Deconstructing Doubt in the Church. Uh, and it's a series of articles that, that one guy edited together. And this is, uh, uh, author Ian uh, Harbour wrote this, but he wrote it quoting someone else named Mark Sayer. And he says this, that the progressive version or vision of the world is as the kingdom without the king. We want all of God's blessings without submitting to his loving rule and reign. We want progress without his presence. We want justice without justification. We want the horizontal implications of the gospel for society without the vertical reconciliation of sinners to God. We want society to conform to our standard of moral purity without God's standard of personal holiness. Now, that, that, is, that is rich, and I can't unpack that. I, I don't try to unpack what other people say up here. I try to unpack what the Bible says. But that, that's a great statement, and, and especially this statement that I found in there for today. We want a horizontal implication of the gospel in our society without the vertical reconciliation of sinners with God. In other words, here's the conundrum we find in Genesis 11, at least even in our own minds, even as Christians. What's wrong with everybody getting together and doing well together? Because Babylon is the father place of pagan religion. It's also the father place or mother place, whichever you want to refer to it, of commercialism and enterprise. It happened right after the flood and all these things have, have, have been in our society since. I, I give you uh, 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 other examples like uh, the TV series Star Trek. Now, I, I'm not here to argue Star Trek, Star Wars, like them both. It's cool. Uh, but I started watching that when I was a little kid. I, for, for you young people, your pastor saw it when it was brand new on TV, okay? I'm just letting you know. Back in the 60s, I saw that stuff when I was a kid. I, man, I named my first pet I ever had. My first dog was named Armstrong because he walked on the moon. I'm just way into that uh, as far as knowing all that stuff. But what is the philosophy? What was the, and this also has helped me through time, once I realized that this stuff happens with a worldview. People write this stuff with a certain worldview. What is the worldview behind Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek? It's this, that the whole world can become one, even though we still know nations and have languages and things like that that are different. We're one world, and then we find other worlds that have peoples on them become one world, and those worlds form an alliance, and we all live at peace except for a few pesky 
Klingons and things like that, okay? And so there's still good and evil in his world, but it's all about us getting along and us being one world together. Interesting, I found an article uh, about the devotion of our current president to the Great Reset Movement. I'm not reading this to be political. I'm reading this. I'm not even going to read it. I'm just going to tell you about it. So you'll understand. There's an organization uh, known as the, uh, I had it right here, um, the World Economic Forum and the United Nations launched a far-reaching campaign to reset the global economy. Here's their motto. In 10 years, no one in the world will own anything and everyone will be happy. Now, they're saying this publicly and doing it publicly while we tell our stories in Sunday school and go get our meals. I want you to catch this. And this article, this was written back in November, but I just saw it. I just looked this stuff up and I found this. The two justifications for the proposal, which has been aptly named by supporters the Great Reset, are the COVID-19 pandemic, the short-term justification, and the so-called climate crisis caused by global warming as the long-term justification. <laughs> uh, one of my brothers here, it, he, he had been up on this too, and he told me afterwards, he said, I went back and checked, and and here's something they said. Conveniently, we had the COVID-19 pandemic. I said, that's funny. I read in a news article this morning that it was a science experiment in China gone bad. And that convenient. <laughs> Folks, I, I'm telling you why that's not political. Because the end of the world has to happen. It's coming. God predicted it. Don't think we're just going to be, whoo, that's good. And then all of a sudden this guy pops up. Hey, I'm going to take over the world. And we all go, sure, go ahead, man. No, we can read the news with the understanding of our Christian life of what is going on. Let me kind of, <laughs> I hate to use this word now. Let me reset your mind just for a second. I've said a whole bunch of stuff. Let me bring you back to something. I had a, a very wise professor when I was in seminary. And that was back in the early 80s. You do the math. And he, he had served in World War II, so do some more math. And he, and he was describing the 60s to us kids who almost saw it but didn't quite. This is about 20 years afterwards. And he said, I was a pastor then, and all of a sudden, it seemed like all at once, this thing happened. All of a sudden, you have this cultural movement. And I, he said, I thought, how did that happen all at once? It wasn't like... You could see it start and it was a spread. He said it just like popped up all at once everywhere. Well, let me help you so that this will help you when you hear the news and listen to music and watch TV shows and movies and all that. There are two reasons anything exists or happened. God and Satan. That's it. It's one or the other. It's one or the other. God is the creator of all things. Satan is the destroyer and, and tries to destroy all things. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I come to give you life and give it to you abundantly. And we are seeing a new, like all of a sudden, mindset amongst a generation of people, our younger generation, where suddenly it's just like somebody threw a switch and all of this upheaval that we're seeing in our society goes back to Satan trying, because you, 
That's, this is a principle that works in every area of life. People will change more or will accept new ideas during a time of chaos. Whether you get married, you had a death in the family, you just moved, you lost your job, you got a new job, tragedy in your life, blessing in your life. You're willing to accept new ideas when that happens. And so on a worldwide scale, Satan is obviously going to create chaos so he can reshape it after his own image. And that's what's happened at Babel. I've been talking about all that too long now. Let me jump in the Word here in, in chapter 11. Let me bring all that back into the Word of God. Let me pray together because I'm not going to read the Scripture. Let me just pray with you. Father, in Jesus' name. Uh, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your word. Lord, I, I thank you. My father taught me that reading the newspaper, uh, when you read the newspaper, you could see the word of God being fulfilled in it uh, every day. And Lord, I thank you for that wisdom that he had to explain that to me so that I began to see your work in all the world. These things are spiritually discerned. God, I pray that all of us here today will have our eyes and ears open, our eyes of understanding open by the Holy Spirit, that we'll see the truth of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I, I want to make this statement. There's only two religions in the world, Christianity and everything else. Everything else is a paganism religion. It's, it's been known as animism, paganism, uh, witchcraft, astrology. All these things are all in the same thing. And what it is is man, an attempt to get to God. We hear phrases today like, well, I'm a spiritual person, but, but I don't believe in the organized church. I always say, oh, do you believe in the disorganized church? Uh, but, but, but there's this, this thing that goes against uh, uh, God's standards in the Bible. Tradition is not a bad thing when it's right, okay? Tradition for tradition's sake is not good, but traditions that we find in Scripture are good. And the Tower of Babel, we see the birth kind of, of this pagan religion. Listen to verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And we're going to see in this story, but not named in this story. you got to go back to chapter 10. Go back to chapter 10 and verse 8. And we see uh, the guy we're talking about. It says there, the sons of Ham, uh, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, the sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Saba, Rama, and uh, Sabtica, the sons of Ramah, uh, and he names those. And then Cush fathered Nimrod. The Bible stops and comes back to Cush because he didn't name them earlier. And says, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, again, the King James didn't do us a favor here because it says what my ESV just said. But, but as scholars look at the language here, there's two interpretations and they, they've left it alone. But, but when you look at the language, that can also mean an evil hunter of men before the Lord or against the Lord. In other words, before the Lord, everything happens before the Lord. He's looking at all of it. Nimrod was a guy that was in rebellion against God. In fact, the word Nimrod means rebel, all right, that, or rebel. That is his name, rebel. And he rebelled against the, a God. Now, if we'd have read the rest of chapter 10 there about Nimrod, he is the guy that started the city at Babel. He started a bunch of other cities in that area. He built Nineveh. Does that hit any chord in your head like Jonah and the whale? Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh and preach. 
Nimrod started that city. Nimrod starts this place. And in verse 1, the whole earth has one language and the same words. Which is kind of funny sounding, isn't it? And Nimrod starts to build there in Babylon. And Nimrod had a wife named Ishtar or Samiramis. And she was called the queen of heaven. And their child was supposedly a miracle son named Tammuz. And this idea of this mother-son deity takes over in all of paganism from then on. In Egypt, you have Isis and Osiris. Isis is the son, uh, and Horus or Osiris is the mom. You have in India, Isa Iswara. In China, the mother is Shingmu with her child. In Greece, you have uh, uh, Ceres or Irene and Plutus. Rome, you have Fortuna and Jupiter or Venus and Adumus. In Scandinavia, you have Friga and Balder. In Roman Catholicism, Mary and Jesus because of the perversion of making Mary a god. That she was without sin until after Jesus' birth. That only a god is without, only God is without sin. This is a perversion and it's, this is what Roman, this is why Roman Catholicism became corrupt is they would adopt ideas from other religions and places and try to use it as a vehicle to bring the gospel. But eventually, once you corrupt the Bible, you preach the Bible, and if it goes against culture, so be it. That's a good thing. And that didn't happen. Now, I'm not, I'm not just fussing at Roman Catholics because Baptists got their own problems. Uh, so, so understand that. But I want you to understand this paganism, this idea of nature being God that's what the animism is that there's a God in everything a pantheistic view of the world or there is a God up there that we don't know as as Paul ran into in Acts so they made a statue to the unknown God in case they miss one this idea that that man is sort of in control that dream of man being one together is actually a nightmare because men without God, fallen men that cooperate together, can only do evil on a larger scale. Man without God can only do evil. A group of men without God can only do evil on a larger scale. And that's what we see happening. And so, I want you to check this out. Look at verse 2. And, and as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Now, why would the Bible tell us that? Because everybody else built with stones back then. This shows a higher degree of intelligence, if you will. See, here's how, because we've been so influenced by evolutionary thought, we believe that men used to live in caves... And then we got smarter and learned how to build houses. Now, the reason men were in caves is they were walking from one place to another, and they didn't, have, they didn't have a portable tent, and they wanted to get in out of the weather, and look, there's a cave. Let's go in there and hang out in there. And so they did. And well, let's scribble on the wall. Let's build a fire. Let's cook some food. It's not that they made it their permanent home. It was like having a temporary home until they could build one, or they were just traveling. And we think they were real dumb, and man has gotten smarter. And it's reversed. They were real smart, and we got stupid. All right? That's just, my, my wife used not let me say that word. My kids are little, but they're all grown now, so I can say it again. We just keep getting dumber. We got more technology, but we're dumber. 
And so back then, men were smarter. They're of one tongue, one nation, uh, one idea, one thought, one word, the same words. They said, let's build a city and a tower in verse 4. So they build this city. We're going to congregate here. And we're going to build this tower, the ziggurat, that's going to reach up and we can worship the stars. Today, amongst, I was mentioned our millennial and younger generation, they go to the Enneagram. Ever heard that? If you're a parent, you need to look that up. It is based in astrology. It is occult. And the idea is you, your personality is messed up and you've got to become this better person and you take this little uh, test, you write, answer these questions and you get these numbers assigned to you. Oh, I'm a six with a three and all this kind of mess. And you're try, everybody's trying to get to be a one-one or something like that. But it is occultic. And again, there are podcasts about this stuff and, and other information out there. You need to educate yourself. Because it is the same thing that was going on here. And so they were resisting the will of God in verse 4. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. Did you notice that? Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, not to the heavens, in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Well, they did make a name for themselves. The name Babylon becomes rampant in, all through Scripture. And in, by the time we get to Revelation, it is used to symbolize world economy. She is known as a prostitute in, in, in uh, Revelation. And that the nations of the world uh, are compromised because they have relationships with this woman known as Babylon. And that is happening. That is, I, I just read you that that is happening, where a, a powerful few want to take over the world's economy in cooperation with the United Nations. Don't put your head in the sand and not figure this stuff out, okay? I, I, I am not a conspiracy theorist. Well, I am. I just don't think it's man-made. Satan is the conspirator, and he conspires against God to destroy what God is up to. And, and the end is coming. And so th these people are going to build this great tower and this great city, and they have this, this religion they're coming up with not long after the flood, about 2200 B B.C. is when this is happening. And then we come to God doing stand-up comedy in verse 5. In verse 5, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Y'all aren't laughing. Y'all see how funny God is? They're building a tower. They're making a name for themselves. We built a city. We built a tower. God says, well, I'm going to come down and look at your little tower." God came down to look at their sandcastles on the seashore. I grew up near a seashore. You know what happens to sandcastles? No matter how big you build them, six hours later they're gone because the tide's changed. <laughs> they're done. And they wash away. Whatever they were building back then to make a name for themselves, we may find the ruins of it, but it's gone. And God in verse 5, in a very subtle way, just goes... Sure, I'll come down and see what you're doing. And I love it. He calls them the children of men. Oh, we're big men. We're going to build a big city. <laughs> yeah, you little 
children of men. It just cracks me up. Y'all, I, don't, I don't know how y'all read the Bible and get bored. I read the Bible and just think, well, God's pretty funny. That's awesome. And then verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, here's why it's bad. He explains why. Behold, they are one people, and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. God is recognizing that man, or helping you to understand his thinking, that man is a fallen creature, has a fallen nature. He tends only to evil. He never tends to righteousness. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none that seek after God. All have gone astray. All have turned to their own way. They all are in rebellion against God. And if man can be together and think together and work together that well, it's going to get real bad. Notice what he goes on to say. So let us go down and confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from, the, uh, from there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. You see, they were in rebellion against God and trying to stay together. God told Adam and Eve, have babies and move out. He told Noah, when you get off that ark, have babies and move out. But instead they stayed together. They didn't want to move out. They wanted to hang together. And so God comes down to the Tower of Babel, confuses their language, and sends them away. So he explains the danger that man is going to get worse and he's going to do some really bad things. And now it's God's turn in verse 7. And God confuses the language and says, you're going to do what I said you're going to do whether you want to or not. And notice in those verse 8 and 9. So the Lord dispersed them from there over all the face of the earth, over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. So they didn't even finish it. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them from the face of the earth. Remember verse 1? Now the whole earth had one language and one and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain and said, let's be together. Verse 9, God disperses it and confuses their language. I think every generation since Christ have believed that they are in the last generation. I mean, they believed it. The early apostles probably believed it. Middle Ages believed it. We believe it. But I, I want to point out one evidence for our generation. I can go anywhere in the world, talk to anybody I want using the translator that's on this phone. They came with the phone. I didn't buy it. It's just on there. We have a one-language business language. We have a one, around the world. We have a one-language transportation language around the world. It happens to be English. Just saying, y'all. With that and everything else we see happening, make yourselves ready for the end draws near. But what I want you to see in this passage today is Humanism ain't new. Paganism is not new. Rebellion against God is not new. Trying to find an alter alternative to God's word is not new. It was, it was almost the first thing that they did getting off the ark. It's a little bit of time there. But not very far after that, let's build a tower and we'll make up our own religion and have our own gods. We see the idea that spread around the world. So in almost every culture, there's a mother-son deity figures. 
We have to be very, 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 very careful not to let that kind of error creep into our thinking. And so what can you do with this today? Well, first of all, I would seek unity in Christ with his bride. You see, the Bible does call us to unity, doesn't it? We're not supposed to be fighting each other, are we? We're not supposed to believe in war. I mean, war is an evil necessity at times for a nation. But we should seek peace, not war. We should live at peace with our brothers and sisters. The only place we can have true unity is in Christ. And that, and that unity is found in his bride, the church. You say, I know the church universal. Listen, there is no church universal without local visible assemblies. We are the church. We are not the only part. Of the, we are part of the church. We're not all the church, but we are part of the church. We're part of that universal body. And when we seek unity, we don't seek unity on a man level, on, a, on an intellectual, humanistic level. We seek it on a spiritual level so that God fixes our brains, Romans 12, 1 and 2. So we would think the thoughts of God, not the thoughts of men. Have your minds washed and transformed by the renewing of the, of the word, the washing of the word in your minds. Take every thought captive uh, tear, to, to the obedience of Christ, to tear down strongholds and every lofty idea that lifts itself against the knowledge of God. These are verses in the Bible. He's warning us. Your brain better start thinking the thoughts of Christ. Philippians, have this mind in you that's also in Christ Jesus. And so we are called to have unity in Christ. And if we have that, then we ought to cooperate with God in bringing the nations into submission to him in Psalm 2. Here in, in Genesis 11, they're making a name for themselves. They're building a, a city for themselves. No, everything we do is for the glory of God and to bring the nations in subjection to him so that of all the nations that we bow before him as Lord and God, as Lord of lords and King of kings. And so we ought to cooperate together to bring the nations. How do you do that? By leading one person to Christ and then leading another and then another and then another. That's how we do it. And then thirdly, realize that you're only Purpose in life, your only unity is for the glory of God. It, all that we do is for God's glory. We don't want to build a church for ourselves. We don't want to operate for ourselves. We want to operate to bring the world in subjection to Christ. And this is why we get messed up. I've told you all before, but some of you all didn't hear this because you weren't here then. I'm going to tell it to you again. You can sum up everything the church, is, ought, to be, the church ought to be doing in four words. And I'm going, I'm going to use... A couple words and then I'll explain them. Evangelism and discipleship. Individually, corporately. Those four words describe everything church is supposed to be doing. Evangelism is telling everybody that you can about Christ, but it's more than that. It's actually seeing people come to know Christ. Discipleship is teaching them to look like Christ. And you do that as an individual. You ought to be telling people about Christ. You ought to be helping people come to Christ. And, and you do discipleship individually. You help them to look like Christ because you ought to look like Christ. You ought to be walking with Christ. We also do it corporately. That means as a church. So we'll do a picnic in the park and we'll preach the gospel where everybody can hear it. We will be nice to our neighbors. We will try to bless people. We'll try to talk to people as a church. We'll put on a Bible school and invite kids in. We'll have times where we just invite people to come and meet the Christ that we love and know and serve as we go out and serve him in their lives when they have a need, when they're hurt. When That's what the church is, for, is here. That's all we have to do. 
Four words explains everything we ought to be doing. And none of it involves building something for ourselves. All of it is based upon have this mind being you that's also in Christ, who being in the very form of God, thought equality with God, not something to be held on to, but set it aside and took on the form of a servant. Being found in fashion as a servant, he became obedient even to death on a cross. And having served us that way, God raised him from the dead and exalted him and gave, gave him a name above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's it. Amen. And Babel and Babylon was in direct opposition to that. So sorry, John Lennon. There is a heaven. There is a hell. And we will not have peace without Christ. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we love you. We thank you. You're awesome, God. And Lord, thankfully, we are not. We are not God. Though we try to be God, we try to make gods in our own image. Lord, we see, as we read and see the news, Lord, when we realize what you said in your word, we realize that you are, you're doing something. Something is happening that you're bringing this thing to a conclusion. And it, it may be very, very, very soon. It, it may be years from now because no man knows that. The, the exact time or hour. The, the people that thought you were coming in their day. Things have gotten much worse since then. Things could get much worse from us. And the end still not come. But Lord, we don't know. But we know this. That we're to live as if you're coming now. You said in First John that those who have this hope in themselves purify themselves. Because we want to be ready when you do come. But Lord, you've called us until you come. You've called us to go. And preach the gospel to every creature in heaven and earth. And Lord, we will proclaim your word and your gospel. Lord, and when we are attacked by our enemy, we'll proclaim the gospel. Lord, we will not struggle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers of wickedness and some in heavenly places at the name of Jesus. And Lord, we want to see your victory, your glory, in your world. And Lord, this quick little story, but there's no quick little story. Everything you put in here has a meaning to us. And so Lord, I pray that we'll realize that apart from you, there is nothing else. As Peter said, where are we going to go? You're the one that has the words of eternal life. Lord, I pray for those children that are struggling because they did not see a spiritual reality in their leaders and their parents. And they're thinking there's got to be something better. And there's not anything better. It's just they didn't see the, the true uh, Christianity in us. And so, Lord, make us more like Christ that we might show him to those that don't know you yet so that we can show them Christ with our lives as we talk to them about Christ with our mouths. Lord, your church needs you. We need, we need repentance. Lord, we need revival. We need to fall on our face before you and proclaim my Lord and my God as Thomas did. And Lord, we ought to be laser focused on why you left us here to bring people to Christ and to disciple them to look like Christ and as we do that and as they move as people move in the spirit Lord you lead us into areas of ministry you have for us and so Lord give us give us your 
your purpose, your plan, your glory. Lord, it's written right there in the Word that every nation, every tongue, every people will bow the knee. And so, Lord, may we bow our knee and then rise to serve you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.